This is episode 197 of IDRA Class Notes. When the 2016 decision came down, we like were surprised at the direction that the decision took the argument because what we heard come forth in terms of layman's language was in Texas, close enough is good enough. And we're not concerned about quality and we're not concerned about equity. When the decision came down, it was a green light for the legislature to do nothing. You are listening to part two of a four-part series on school finance for IDRA's podcast, Class Notes. My name is Morgan Craven. I'm the National Director of Policy at IDRA. Since its founding in 1973, IDRA has focused its research, community engagement, and policy efforts on expanding access to excellent, equitable education opportunities for all students. A significant part of ensuring access to those opportunities requires securing fair funding for schools no matter the part of town in which they are located, the number of students of color or English learners, or the level of wealth of families in the community. I'm pleased to host this school finance podcast series with episodes focused on the history of school finance legislation, activism, and litigation in Texas, the most recent legal and policy fights, the passage of the major school finance reform bill in 2019, House Bill 3, and the future of equitable school funding in Texas. I'll be having this four-part conversation with two other school finance advocates who have been part of the research, litigation, and policy work on this issue in Texas for decades. Dr. Albert Cortez was the Director of School Finance Reform and the Director of Policy at IDRA for many years. He was an expert witness in numerous school finance cases, a resource expert for policy-focused organizations and coalitions, and the author of many articles on a broad array of school finance issues. Dr. Cortez has testified before Texas and other state bodies, including the U.S. Senate Education and Labor Committees on a range of education issues. Professor Al Kaufman was a civil rights litigator specializing in the education, voting, and employment rights of Latinos. Professor Kaufman was the senior litigating attorney for the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Educational Fund, MALDEF, in San Antonio for almost 20 years. As a MALDEF attorney, Kaufman was the lead attorney for plaintiffs in the Texas school finance cases, for Latino plaintiffs in the Texas higher education system finance and desegregation case and in litigation challenging the state's use of the TOSS test for graduation from Texas high schools. We hope you enjoy the conversation. So in segment two of this series, we're going to talk about the lead up to House Bill 3, which was the major school finance bill that passed during the 86th legislative session in 2019 in Texas. And the first question is for Al. Can you describe the circumstances and outcome of the most recent Texas school funding court case, which was decided in 2016? So who filed the case and why, what the district court decision was, any interesting or unique strategic approaches, compelling testimony of families or other experts, what happened in the Texas Supreme Court, all of that. Sure. The case in 2005, I have to go back a little bit, the last Edgewood case somehow upheld the school finance system except that it said that there was a statewide ad valorem tax, that somehow the system limited the flexibility of districts to raise more money for their schools. Now, that is a claim that basically helps the wealthy districts and doesn't really help the poor districts because the poor districts 
don't have any flexibility because they can't raise any money from their local taxes. They can only raise money if the state's helping them. So that was in 2005. Nevertheless, and this has happened throughout, uh, even if the states won the case, they often have improved in the sessions, legislative sessions after that or the next one, because there's an increase in public understanding and there's more pressure on state legislators. So that has happened. So after the the case in 2005, there was some improvements made in the late 2007-2009. IDRA, MALDEF continued to advocate. The Equity Center advocated. A lot of groups like that. Then there was a problem in the state economy, and the state lopped off $5 million, $5 billion, $5 billion off the state school finance system, which had immediate negative effects on all the districts, but especially on the poor districts who couldn't make up the loss of state funding. So that caused a whole other round of lawsuits. So you had several different groups join in those lawsuits because all of them were suffering, and here's the way they sort of lined up. The original poor districts, the Edgewood districts and the other poor districts that joined in, uh, continued with the lawsuit and said, look, the system isn't equitable or fair. It's also not adequate. It's not at a high enough level. Then some very wealthy districts joined and said, this system continues to discriminate against us now because we're at a cap. We can't raise our revenues up above a certain level because of the state statute. So we want to go back to court to knock off that tax cap so we can have a better system. And we generally want the state to put more money into the system. The poor districts joined them in that. Everybody agreed on that theory. There was also a group of people who wanted more charter schools to be funded. There's another group who felt that the system wasn't efficient because they spent too much money on superintendent and teacher salaries, but those claims didn't make it very far. Nevertheless, the district court in Austin agreed with the poor districts and even the wealthy districts that the system was unconstitutional. And this was done in great detail. Uh, I've been following these decisions now since, I guess, 1987. We got our first one. And this was clearly the most complete record ever developed about Texas school finance. And they showed the inequities in all sorts of ways. Uh, Inequity between poor districts and rich districts, where limited English proficient students live versus where they didn't, where they went to school where they didn't, where poor districts were, poor students were where they weren't. Uh, All of those disparities continue to exist. In fact, we're getting worse now because of the reduction of the $5 billion. So all of those claims were asserted. They also did something in these last cases that had never been done before which is especially the wealthy districts and also the low wealth districts hired their own experts to say what would it cost to put on a truly constitutional state school finance system. So the state had really never done that, has still not done that. They do some statistical studies, they go to somebody in their their data section and say, why don't you study the districts that are doing well, how much they spend, that's all we need. But that's not the study. The study has to go back and just recreate a school finance system. How would it look? How large should classes be? What should the teacher salaries be? Uh, How much extra money do you need for limited English proficient students, English language learners? How much do you need for poor students? How much do you need for each type of special ed? And just recreate all that. What do you have to pay teachers to get them and keep them? What do you have to pay administrators? All that has to be done. Every time they've done that, they found that the state of Texas was about 
$2,000 too low in terms of what's spent on its students. That even if state was spending 10000 that you needed more like 12000 to really provide this constitutional system. So that's what the district court found. So that was the record that went up. The state appealed it. The Supreme Court opinion in 2016 was clearly the worst of all of the state school finance opinions, and I've studied them all. Needless to say, I like the ones at the beginning that we were involved in, and they went our way. But even the opinions that had gone against the poor districts were never as bad as this one. This one in 2016 called Texas Taxpayer Coalition versus Morath. Morath mm-hmm. was the new superintendent of education. That basically made it impossible ever to go back to court and really win a school finance case. It said that what they spend on school finance is a matter of legislative discretion, that the legislature can define what you need for a general diffusion of knowledge. Some people abbreviate that as GDK, general diffusion of knowledge. All of these things went into the opinion. This Supreme Court said what the legislature wants is fine with us. It's a legislative decision. The legislature gets to define what you need for a general diffusion of knowledge. The legislature gets to decide how much funding disparities there can be in the system. The legislature gets to decide overall how much should be spent on the system. And in effect, this is a legislative priority and the court should not be there. But then the court went on and did something even worse, even though they basically ignored the last 20 years of Texas uh, Supreme Court opinions. They went on and said, you know, the real problem here is not the state. The problem is the families that the school finance disparities are not really caused by the state. They're caused because some families can't provide a good education for their kids and their kids are not doing as well. And they went all the way back to what they call the famous Coleman studies back in the 1960s. And there are some experts out there called money doesn't make a difference experts. They have done some studies and they'll show, there's some statistics to back it up, that if you take a district that's spending $10,000 a student and you give them an extra $500 a student next year, their scores are not going to go up because it takes 10 or 15 years to improve those districts. But nevertheless, and they come in and they conclude that money doesn't really matter. So the Supreme Court completely bought that and believed it. Even though they had held, even the opinions that found against the poor districts in the past had said, we know that money's important and we know you can probably get a better education with more money, but, but this latest opinion said there's no proof it matters that experts are on both sides of the question, so whatever the state wants, the state gets. Which is such an interesting conclusion to reach when you have wealthy school districts that advocate so hard to have access to even more money and to be able to keep that money. If money doesn't matter, why do they need it and nobody else does? We have at times made that argument. (laughs) If the wealthy districts say money doesn't matter, why is it that they want more? Right. And why is it they don't want to share with us? Right. But even though the poor district and the wealthy district all agree we need more money for the system, the Supreme Court didn't agree. And I think it's going to make it almost impossible to get the state court system back involved in improving the school finance system. Was the decision a complete surprise to you? No, it, it wasn't a surprise that they decided against the plaintiffs. Mm-hmm. It was a decide how egregious mm-hmm. the decision was and how they rewrote the law so completely and how they ignored their own decisions. That was a surprise. And Albert, 
The case that Al just described had policy implications, obviously, for the Texas 85th legislative session in 2017, and certainly for the 86th in 2019. Can you talk about those implications, including the School Finance Commission after 2017? And can you also talk about what it's like policy-wise to try to implement changes in the system without the stick of a court order? And then I'm going to also add in, if you don't mind, because you have talked about this before, the interplay between litigation policy and community-based activism and why that's important. When the 2016 decision came down, we, like Maldef and Al, others, were surprised at the direction that the decision took the argument. Because what we heard come forth in terms of layman's language was, in Texas, close enough is good enough. And we're not concerned about quality, and we're not concerned about equity. All we're concerned about is, is close enough good enough for the majority of, of school children in Texas? When the decision came down, it was a green light for the legislature to do nothing. And historically, we had always found that when a school finance case was decided in favor of the plaintiffs, and if it was, you know, the lower districts that were the lead plaintiffs, there followed substantive reform. Millions of dollars were put into the system, new programs were created, and the ball was moved forward. Historically, when the status quo advocates won the case, the legislature did little or nothing, put minimal amounts in the system. In some cases, it was enough to cover growth and enrollment, and that was it. And school districts were then left to their own resources to try to come up with what was needed to provide the education that they felt was required in their individual systems. So the lack of incentive for the legislature to reform often led to little or or no reform. And unfortunately, that trend continued after the last school finance case. The legislature did minimal amounts of funding in the 2017 session because there was no pressure to do anything because what was in there was obviously, according to the court decision, good enough. Did it make Texas competitive? No. Did it put us among the top tier of quality of education of states in the country? Not close. But that was not a concern for the legislature. Where the pressure did begin to build, though, is that in the absence of state funding, local property taxes needed to start to go up in order to compensate for the lack of state support of its own educational programs. Uh, So much so that by the time 2019 was rolling around, the state share of funding for public education had dropped down to about 37%. That meant that local school districts were carrying two-thirds of the load to fund public education, when clearly the Constitution says that education is a state responsibility. So there was a lot of pressure that began to build then on the legislature to address rising property taxes that they themselves were causing by refusing to increase funding for public education. The creation of a commission was not a new concept. 
back in the 1980s, there was the parole commission, similar situation where the state was under a lot of pressure to reform its system. The leadership decided they were going to put together a blue ribbon committee as a way of providing some both direction and leverage to get the legislature to take some substantive steps forward. And after that commission, some significant progress was made. This latest commission on school finance was tasked with a similar uh, charge, come up with an assessment of what is it that needs to be done to improve the system, including the kind of funding that is required, and then submit recommendations for the legislature to consider in 2019. The challenge, though, is that this commission heard from everybody under the sun. And the breadth of their agenda and recommendations, in my mind, created tremendous challenges. If the state were going to address all the issues that were brought up by the commission, they would have needed two to three times the kind of money that they were willing to appropriate. But the commission took their task seriously, said these are all these issues that we need to address. Full-day funding for pre-K programs. We need to address teacher salary issues. We need to address property tax reduction. We need to address underfunding for special populations. We need to address underfunding for the basic allotment. We need to address and create innovative programs for reading and mathematics at the third grade level, and on and on. And while these, no argument that all of these reforms are important and, and necessary, there was no rank ordering of priorities within that commission and in the commission recommendations. And they submitted their, the recommendations to the legislature and said, well, this is what we think needs to be done. Basically, ball is in your court. Do you think that was an effective way to go about doing things, at least in terms of having everyone weigh in and give their opinions and address so many parts of the system? I think the concept of a specialized commission has its place. I think that the scope and the focus and the prioritization should have been written into the direction that was given to that body. Because absent that, I think it is understandable that given the breadth of issues and the complexity that is associated with Texas education, that the absence of those parameters, I think, created the kind of challenges that this legislature faced. Mm -hmm. My final question for both of you. So lots of people talk about equity in school finance. Certainly, we heard who they called the big three, the Speaker of the House, Lieutenant Governor, and the Governor talk about equity. And one even said after the conference committee for House Bill 3 that equity had been resolved by the bill. So I want to go to this question of funding equity. What does that actually look like, in your opinion, and how will we know when we have an equitable school finance system in our state? We'll start with you, Al. I think we'll know that we've achieved that goal when no matter what school district a student goes to, they have the same access to the funding that they need for a high-level, high-quality education in every district in the state at any tax rate. Now, you know, our state, even in the litigation, we've always said that districts do have the discretion 
to have higher or lower tax rates and then they'll spend more or less on their school and maybe that's not even fair but at the very least we need to say that every district for any tax rate has the same funding as every other district and that that funding is based on a real up-to-date assessment of what the students in that district need so MALDEF and IDRA in the last litigation at the district court level convinced the trial court that they needed to spend much more money per student on students who are English language learners or who are come from low-income families. That's one factor. The special education weights need to be raised up to date. So once you put all those things into the formula, that if you are in Presidio or Highland Park or Deer Park in Houston or Pampa in the Panhandle, and you're a student in that district, your district for a certain tax rate has all the money they need to provide a really high level quality education for you. Albert. I agree with Al's point that once we see that, regardless of the wealth of the community, that every district that taxes at similar tax rates gets similar return for effort, that's equitable as historically defined. We believe that when we got off into a discussion of general diffusion of knowledge, that that's a swamp we'll never get out of. And a much clearer measure, in, in my opinion, is this concept of similar return for similar effort, regardless of the characteristics of the district uh, in which that child lives. It also means, however, that we not look simply at the revenue side, but that we consider what happens to those children once they leave that district. Are they getting into college at the same rates as any other district around the state? Are they being as successful and are they graduating from college, regardless of the district or the family background? Are those then individuals, if you follow up, once they get out of college, are they getting equitable opportunities to contribute in whatever ways they chose to contribute to the community that they choose to live in? Those are critical issues. We, we pointed out in numerous court cases, it doesn't matter what school a child might get educated in. When they become the young adult, we don't know if they're gonna wind up in San Antonio, Valley, Texas, Houston, Austin, uh, Atlanta, California, or Washington, D.C. The potential contribution that any one of those children from those districts, we should assure that the resources and the opportunities that are provided for those kids is comparable no matter where they happen to grow up well said from both of you. I would just add, I think it's an interesting thing to kind of look beyond the state funding system, the policy work um, and the research that you, Albert, have done for so long in the litigation and research that you have done, Al, and dig into what's happening in neighborhoods and schools and individual school districts and the systems that we have in place that allow communities essentially to get around the law. So I think about for example, money that PTAs are able to raise and keep within their individual school um, and how 
despite what we do at the state level or even at the district level, people have found ways to perpetuate a lot of systems that are really, really harmful for children that we can't legislate or litigate our way out of. So I think school funding equity looks exactly like what you two described, and I think that we have to dig so far into the systems that we have to get to that. If I could add to that point, Morgan, that it does take that collective effort of litigation experts that can clarify what the parameters of the law are, research and other experts that can look at the numbers and the programs and the conditions in schools and make assessments of what might need to be done. But the critical factor here is a community. And working in tandem with the litigation experts and the policy advocates. The community is really the base of where reform starts and where it ends. And having communities aware of the issues, well-versed on the issues, and be equal participants in all phases of the process, not supporters, not advisors, but people that sit at the table, sit in the courtrooms, sit in the committee rooms, sit in the boardrooms, and talk about what is essential for their children to have in order to have the best opportunities that can be provided to them. Absent those critical players, I think what we see around the country is efforts that may have one of the elements or a couple of the elements, but don't have all the critical elements. And that may be a reason why it is such a challenge in so many other places. Thank you. Thank you for listening to IDRA Class Notes. For more information on IDRA and other Class Notes topics, go to www.idra.org. You can also send us your thoughts by email to podcast at idra.org.